DJ. DJ Frightful. You down here? It's Ryan. If you're hiding, I promise I'm not here to serve you with papers. PJ. Wow, damn it! Shag? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? I'm looking for a light switch. It doesn't work. There hasn't been power running to this place for years. That's why I brought this flashlight. Let me help you up. Okay, here, thanks. What What did I fall into anyway? What are these boxes? Hang on, there's a label. Oh, my hand just touched something slimy. It says small intestines for Halloween. Uh, you mean like fake intestines, right? Like decorations? Sure. I hate you. I hate this place. Well, what are you doing here? I'm looking for PJ Frightful. He hasn't put on a new episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour since, like, Christmas. So you came to the old abandoned radio station where he records. Yeah, I had the same idea. Okay, so where is he? I don't know. His studio's over there. Huh. Covered in cobwebs and dust. Okay. Candelopras on the wall. Ugh, smells like rotting meat. Yeah, this is pretty much exactly how I pictured Paul Hicks's working conditions. Over here, there's a note on his desk, along with a comic. Oh, is it JLI? Why would it be JLI? You know, issue 25. Beetle and Booster, they, they fight a vampire. It's kind of like a horror story. Okay, I guess. Well, what is it? Seriously, is, is that House of Mystery? Issue 294. Hey, check out the cover. Mike Kaluta. That's nice. I like that. What's, uh, what's the note say? It's on his stationery, from the desk of Pope James Frightful. Pope James? That's what the PJ stands for. His name is Pope James? There's actually an interesting story about that. No, I I don't care about that. Just read the damn note. Okay, all right. To whoever finds this note... No, no, you gotta read it in the PJ Frightful voice. I don't know how to do his voice. Yes, you do! Just do it! To whoever finds this note... That says nothing like PJ Frightful. Whatever! Oh my god. To whoever finds this note, I have taken ill. I think it's the flu been running a high fever for three days, along with shortness of breath and nausea. Haven't been able to keep any food down since dinner last Sunday. I think something was off in the bat stew. Oh my god. I've asked Johnny Oddball to take me to the hospital, but the idiot is running late, naturally. If I need to be admitted for several days, I have left a horror comic next to my recording equipment. Feel free to do the next episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour, without me. The note's dated March 5th. Are you kidding me? Flu symptoms? Bat stew? And he never left the hospital? You know what this is, right? I think it's worse than that, actually. There's a P.S. at the end of the note. To make sure none of you sons of bitches steal my comics, I have gone ahead and licked the covers of every one. Enjoy my germs, you bastards. Cough, cough, wheeze. He actually wrote, cough, cough, wheeze. You have got to be kidding me. This is all your fault. You know, Midnight was your idea. You got us involved with this ridiculous bat-eating, intestine-collecting weirdo who lives in a radio station basement. I thought he was a pope. You need to go to a podcast promo break right now because I'm going to beat the living crap out of you and I don't want the listeners to have to hear it. We'll be back with House of Mystery issue 294 right after this break. Don't go away. 
anyone hear us? This is Trey Lawson. And I'm James Hickson. Anyone can hear this broadcast. We need your help. We've been kidnapped and imprisoned in a tomb by this creepy old undertaker named Mr. Gravely. And he's forcing us to review his collection of Marvel horror comics. Stuff like Tomb of Dracula. Werewolf by Night. Man-Thing. Ghost Rider. And so much more. If you can hear this, please contact our families. Tell them we can be found at... You can find James and Trey every other Wednesday at the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. See you there, Tomb Believers. We're back, and if you hadn't figured out from the prologue, I'm Ryan Daly, and with me is one of the founders of the Fire and Water Network, the irredeemable Shag. Welcome back to the show, Shag. Thanks for having me. You know, after I did that episode about the Spectre, where I pretty much didn't shut up for three hours, I didn't think I was going to get invited back, but thank you so much. How long ago was that? Um, wait, hold on. I think, wasn't uh, The Graduate still in the theaters? (laughs) Uh, so yeah, and now that now you are back, we are going to cover the first story from House of Mystery issue 294, which has a July 1981 cover date and a 50 cent price tag. The actual on sale date was April 23rd, 1981. The cover is drawn by Michael Kaluta, and it shows a little girl in bed pulling her covers up to her chin as she quakes in terror at the sight of something of which we can only see the shadow which looks like Groot I guess <laughs> I was thinking over. Jeff Goldblum towards the end of the fly yeah, but yeah. okay and it, it's looming over her what do you think of the cover oh I think it's fantastic I do think that you can't necessarily assume it's a girl just because it's got a, a pink uh, elephant there but um, it, it, either way it's, it's a nice non-gender specific kid who looks terrified mm-hmm. and I, it, it's, it's well it's Mike Kaluta so you know it's gorgeous I, the shadow effect is really really well done so it's, it's a win all the way around it's, it's, it's creepy it's spooky it's atmospheric and it scares the crap out of you oh yeah yeah the effect of the hands reaching up over the shadow of the hands I guess reaching up over uh, over the bed and also like over the covers like toward her or him um, and I love the little detail of like the the blank spaces of the eyes you know that's a yep. cheat it doesn't make a lot of physical sense but it's always just a nice little touch when you have like those little blank spaces where the, the eyes exist even on the shadow so I don't mean to show my hand a little too early, but this amazing cover, and then it says there's something lurking in the darkness and it's coming your way. I mean, this really sets you up for a terrifying tale of of nighttime and darkness. It's not exactly what you get, though, in the comic. Yeah. It's a great cover for that. Yeah, tipping our hand a little bit too much. I would rather read the story from this cover. <laughs> it's not bad. What we're going to get is not bad. It's just this is great. I mean, Mike Kaluta in 1980, height of his powers. Are you kidding? Absolutely. It's amazing. Yeah. And we, I mean, we've talked about him before. Like on Secret Origins, he did the cover for the uh, Man Bat and. Cover. <laughs> Well, uh, a couple different things I was going to share. First of all, this issue, by the way, is available on the DC Universe app, uh, which is great. I didn't realize that until uh, we got started in, in the prep work. I just happened to look at that. I didn't know they had so many House of Mystery and horror comics out there. And horror comics for me, it's always been sort of a weird thing to me because I, I think I told you on the, on the previous one, I didn't really read horror comics growing up. 
And for me, comic books have always been superheroes for the most part. You know, later on, you get some Vertigo, some more mature titles, whatever. But superheroes is primarily what it's been. And at this point in history, when this when this book was on the shelves, I went ahead and went to Mike's Amazing World and, and looked to see what was going on in the world of DC Comics at the time. And there were actually five monthly or maybe bi-monthly, whatever. There were five horror comics on the shelves the same month. You had that this House of Mystery. You had Ghosts. You had Madame Xanadu number one, which is mm-hmm. a fantastic cover. Uh, Secrets of the Haunted House and Unexpected. All of these were on the shelves at the same time. So it's just interesting to me that uh, this there were so many horror books. At the same time, the superhero comics were so prevalent because, again, I, in my mind, they're like separate worlds. It's almost like they weren't published at the same time. But also, to give you a, a picture of what I mean, at the same time this is going on in the world of superheroes, the same month this book was on the shelves was the first appearance or the first published appearance i should say of the vixen you know yeah. goes on for suicide squad george perez was drawing jla yeah uh the second superman spider-man treasury was on the shelves wolfman perez were getting close to ending their first year on new teen titans uh, over at marvel john byrne had just started on fantastic four so like for me i intimately know that era of superheroes and it sort of blows my mind that there were so many horror comics at the same time because again they're just different worlds to me I think even a, a few years before this, at one point there were seven horror or suspense or mystery okay. titles being published concurrently because you also had a Swamp Thing and Phantom Stranger ongoing Ooh. in addition to you know five or maybe like six or something different uh, you know monthly or bi-monthly anthology books too. So. Wow. And it's such a different time. There's also a bunch of war books. I'm not even looking yeah, at those, yeah. but I mean just all the different genres that DC was actually still publishing. I think the reason probably so many of them are on the DC Universe app and, and Comixology, I think they've all been digitized because within the last maybe year or two, uh, DC has actually published um, omnibus editions of some mm. of these. Uh, like like the, once the Joe Orlando era started when he took over like with these House of Mystery books and stuff like that and House of Secrets, I think they've each gotten at least one hardcover omnibus that probably collected 30 to 50 issues or something in them. Um, oh, wow. So I, okay. I, think, I mean, just the, the process of going through those omnibuses, they all have to be cleaned, digitized, recolored in a lot of cases. So, uh, And once they've got them up, once they've gone through that process, like, yeah, we'll make them available digitally. So, Yeah, the only downside to this digital version is I, I really get the sense this was scanned from an issue rather than like the original pencils or clean it because it's, it's cleaned up, but not all that much. All right, let us get into the first story. The Darkness is written by your best friend, Jerry Conway. Penciled, he kind of is. <laughs> penciled by Carmen Infantino, inked by John Beatty, lettered by John Costanza, and colored by Carl Gafford. This story, like every story in this issue, is edited by Karen Berger. Woohoo! Montgomery Craig is a shrewd and remorseless businessman who doesn't care about the people whose lives he destroys by manipulating the stock market. The only thing that does upset Craig, and it terrifies him to his core, is darkness. After security escorts a disgruntled business rival out of his office, and with less than 20 minutes before sunset, Craig tells his assistant, Kingly, that he's going home for the weekend. Kingly assures his boss that traffic is light enough that he should have no trouble going home before dark. Craig lives in a lavish townhouse on the waterfront with enough windows to keep it well lit during the day. But when the sun goes down every night, Craig lights up the house so bright that not a single shadow could exist. For Montgomery Craig, this excessive illumination is necessary to keep out the dreadful darkness. He pours himself a strong drink, and he remembers how his phobia began. 
decades ago, when Craig was a small child, his family lived in Haiti while his father was attached to the U.S. Embassy there. Craig would walk through the streets without a care. One day, while hiding from his mother, he slipped into a shop and quickly realized it was full of arcane relics of voodoo worship. One artifact grabbed his attention, a black glass amulet. The shop owner, calling herself Mother Juju, caught young Montgomery in the act of stealing the amulet. She warned him that it would call down the darkness on him. Little Montgomery scoffed at her superstition and ran off with the charm. That night, lying in bed, he decided the amulet was not as exciting as he first thought. He chucks it aside and it shatters on the floor. But later, when the lights are out in his room, Craig felt something reach out of the darkness and grab him. He screamed, and the terror of that moment never went away. All these years later, Montgomery Craig is still afraid of that formless shadow reaching for him from the dark. Hence why, after amassing a fortune, Craig keeps the lights on in his home at all times, until this night. When he's going to refill his drink, suddenly all the lights go out. Blind terror strikes Craig as he fumbles around in the dark, and then he feels that dread hand again touch him. The fear is too strong for Craig's heart to bear. Clutching his chest, he stumbles forward and crashes into a glass table. He is dead by the time his assistant, Kingly, turns the power back on. Kingly being the one who turned off the lights in the first place and then skulked around in the dark so he could scare his boss to death. Now Kingly gloats about his long-awaited plans to murder Craig and take his position as CEO of his company. He mocks Craig's fear of the dark, that is, until the power suddenly shuts off again. Kingly barely has time to wonder what happened before the nameless, shapeless thing in the dark is upon him. He screams in terror as the thing, whatever it is, bites him in two. Alright, Shag, what did you think of the story? I would say it's got a lot of interesting things in it. It's the whole idea of being terrified of the dark. I mean, everyone's been there. Everybody has lived that moment where you know, either you, you wake up in the middle of the night, you don't know where you are, or you're outside and the lights go out, you know, whatever. Everyone's had that moment of sheer terror from the dark. And having built this character whose entire life is designed around that is, is interesting. And to me, the, the probably the most interesting piece of this is speculating what the ending really means. What was Jerry Conway trying to tell us? So, and, and I'll put the question to you. So the, the darkness curse, right, mm-hmm. from the, the amulet he steals. What was it? So uh, the way I see it, I see two different things. Either the curse was to live a life in fear, meaning that Cra- that's Craig's punishment is actually to be scared his entire life long. And then uh, – and part of where, where the question comes from is why does it kill Kingsley, that kind of thing. So if, if the punishment is to live a life in fear, did the darkness kill Kingsley for basically breaking the curse? Because you know it's Kingsley's fault the guy dies. Right. So is that why Kingsley dies? Or the reverse, was the curse uh, – had Craig avoided the curse for 40 years by always keeping the lights on? And did, did uh, this you – know, cutting the lights off, did this finally give the darkness a chance to kill Craig? And, and you know, is that why it also got Kingsley? You know, I, I, I wonder – I have my own suspicion. What do you think? I think it's probably the latter. I, I mean, I think we're meant to assume. I mean, he kind of, Conway sort of does like the double shock ending, the double O. Henry ending, which is like, you know, the 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 shock of the the fear was the real curse, the living in terror and never being able to rest for one single night. 
you know, be for this fear of the dark, and that was that was the curse. That was what haunted him ever since he committed that crime as a kid, and and stole the amulet and then broke it. Uh, so by the end of it, we're meant to assume that that was the fear that he could never escape, or that was the curse, and and that's why he died of fright. Um, but then, oh, there's that switcheroo, and and the revelation was that no, there always was something really lurking in the dark, just waiting for him, and it never got the chance to kill him. But it's going to go after the next closest target. Um, I, I think that's kind of like the the double shock that that uh, Conway was going for. I think it's it's the the previous version, the no, the former, whatever. I think it's that the the curse was he was supposed to live in fear forever, and that the darkness could have killed him at any time because mm. the darkness cuts out the lights on Kingley. Yeah, you know, so the true. darkness always had the power to turn off the lights. So I think the darkness always wanted to make Craig terrified. And so that's what the real power was, the real terror. And then once Craig was taken off the Borg, uh, off the Borg, Borg was a Star Trek, <laughs> taken off the board, that's where the darkness is like, well, damn it, you screwed up my curse. And that's why they killed Kingley. Mm, that's true. Either way, it, it could go either way. It makes for interesting speculation. Yeah. Um, so what did you think? Uh, I'm curious what you think of the art because this is Carmen Infantino. Not at the end of his career, but certainly very far into his career. And his art style is pretty stylized by this point. What did you think of it? I thought it was serviceable for this story. And I, I will say, and I, I kind of I started to mention this to you um, before, when you asked me why I wanted you for the story, it was really because of one single panel. It's the, okay. th- it's the third panel on page two. That image of Montgomery Craig, the first time I saw that, I was like, that looks like William Daniels. I was like, that kind of looks like Mr. Feeney. It's got like the jowls and the kind of Finnish mustache. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's the guy from Boy Meets World. I was like, that's Shag's friend. I was like, well, or seen elsewhere at this seen point. Elsewhere, or yeah, yeah. or um, would, would the voice of Kit, 1981, uh, was, I don't think. <laughs> Knight Rider was out yet. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, he totally looks like William Daniels. You're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, when, when you jokingly say my best friend, um, the truth is actually <laughs> when you and I were at uh, – or were you with Boston. us? No, wait. Yeah, it was at Boston. I wasn't with you, but you, I, was, I was there. You, I heard the story, yeah. Okay, yeah. So um, uh, he was there at the convention, and it was like, oh, look, it's the voice of Kit. That's who I care about uh, is right. Kit. But what I freaked out about was his wife, Bonnie Bartlett, was there, who was in V. So I actually went up there and got my picture with the husband and wife. And, and then when the I published out. it, I cropped out. You know, I, I cropped him out. You know, this super famous William Daniels, and uh, just so I could have his wife in the picture with me. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I will also tell you because uh, at this point, like I said, Carmen Infantino is pretty far along in his career. I was actually reading a lot of his stuff uh, from this era. He had done a whole bunch of Star Wars comics. Yeah, yep. In fact, at this point, he he had just the previous month had done almost his last issue of Star Wars. He does a couple more after that, but pretty much kind of his last regular issue. And then he was also drawing The Flash at this point. And I read a ton of those because Firestorm was in the backups and Dr. Fate was in the backups and all these various things. I'm not the biggest fan of Carmen Infantino in this era. So uh, I didn't struggle with this because I'm used to it. But you're right. It's, it comes down to serviceable, I think is probably the best way to put it. You know, um, yeah. it's, There are certain panels that are great. I mean, I, I don't know what's going on with the guy's tie. Um, the way he <laughs> ties it around his neck is kind of like, I don't know, very 1800s it looks like, you know? Yeah. And I like the flashbacks. I love the Dutch boy haircut the little kids got. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, he's sort of like the in the voodoo shop. It's There's like no backgrounds. It's all colored black. But you just get like these little hints of things like shrunken heads and, and some other kind of like bug things. But it's, yeah. Dangling claw feet and stuff like that. Where I was going to go, though, was this guy Montgomery Craig also happens to look exactly like the way Carmen Infantino drew Barry Allen's dad. In that series, yeah. So it's like when I look at him, I'm like, oh yeah, that's Barry's dad, absolutely. So it's a, I guess he's got a, he's got a type. 
All right, we got to talk about the very end then. Um, okay. The story either needed like another page of of real estate to to flesh it out, or or kind of need to like trim something because like when I got to the end, I was like, yeah, okay, I saw it. Like he was set up by his his put upon assistant who, who kind of had an axe to grind, and I I get the revenge angle. The fact that the assistant is so sure that he's going to be made the new CEO, he does say I've seen to that, so implied some sort of coercion or blackmail or something, but that seems like quite a jump in status. Yeah, absolutely. To to go from the guy who fixes the light bulbs in the in the hallway. Uh, I think though it's a case of once the reveal is done of who the bad guy is, you just got to get out of the story. Exactly. There's, there's nowhere else to go. So I guess they could have done maybe a couple of earlier panels about you know that guy saying yes, I'll get the light bulbs fixed and I'll I'll, ha- I'll handle that meeting with the board yeah. and or something like that. Maybe could have given you a little more, but um, it did end very rapidly. No doubt about that. And mean, it could but- be the guy's just so pissed that his boss makes him wear those square glasses I mean, that might be part of it <laughs> which is by the way another carmen infantino hallmark of this era yep. are those square glasses <laughs> in 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 my head canon uh i like to think that the this whole thing is actually tied up with the amulet which he uh there's, there's a great line actually there's a really nice jerry conway line in here when the, in the flashback where the kid has the amulet and he throws it away because he doesn't want it the the line is he discovered that what had been so enticing in the wanting was so much black glass in the acquisition. Mm-hmm. Really like the way that sentence is written. It's really I had to read it a couple times to kind of take it. I'm like ah that kind of it's nice. Anyway, uh, it's a black glass thing. So I started thinking, all right, you know, in my head canon, that's actually Eclipso's black diamond, Ooh. and <laughs> the darkness is Eclipso. So this is actually a, a Bruce Gordon story, as far as I'm concerned. Well. I would have rather gotten that in the final panel because <laughs> I I do I love the twist at the very end with, you know, the guy killing his boss, thinking he got away with it, this perfect little crime. You know, he said that there's no physical evidence to suggest that he, he killed this guy, he just died of fright. And then the lights turn out on him and it's this reversal and some horrific monster comes out of the shadows and bites him in half. And I know there's probably no satisfying way of drawing that to to really, I mean, like because that's the power of the darkness. It is the power mm-hmm. of the mind. So it's whatever you can imagine, whatever you can fear, is the most terrifying thing. So if they tried to cheat with that and have uh, Carmine Infantino draw something like that, it just wouldn't be as effective, you know, short of like the the Kaluta shadow on the cover. Sure, but just the fact that they have to actually spell it out and explain it in a caption on the last panel where it's just black and you get the I in like red text and then a caption and something in the darkness bit kingly in two it's like you just uh, it's like that. that's the sort of thing that if you're not going to show us don't just tell us it's, <laughs> like that was, that was my one thing with Conway I was like dude come on take another stab at that last panel something else well, here's what actually went through my head because it was so strange. I actually have multiple times wondered if there's some play on words I'm not getting. Like, because you're right, the phrasing of "and something in the darkness bit kingly in two. I'm like, is that like a play on a Shakespeare quote or something? Like something like kingly and and, and, and that I'm missing. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. And I just left it. But it's it feels like there's, there's like there's something more I'm not getting. Yeah, I, I mean, and I, and the other thing is like just the fact that he's it's it's something 
like inhuman enough to bite him in like whereas the only other image specifically in two by the way not just kill him but it specifically bit him in two right right whereas like when when montgomery was a kid on page six we just see the shadow of something that looks like a hand over his foot and a fairly humanoid hand and that was i mean even though it's kingly like that's sort of like the instrument of montgomery's death it's the hand reaching out for him but now Mm -hmm. it's like is it is it like a shadow demon crocodile or something that's coming out of the door? Or jaws? It's Eclipso. It's Eclipso, giant mouth. So. I would just like to personally thank you for inviting me for the weakest story in the whole book. Because, folks, <laughs> it gets a lot better from here. Every story is stronger. Even Kane's game room is, is better than uh, what we just had here. So, <laughs> Spoilers, but also promotion for it to keep on listening to the next exactly <laughs> if this has been tolerable yeah. it only goes up from here everybody <laughs> yeah and i'm not going to subject you to those so um where else can people find you on the podcastosphere uh just look for me hanging off of ryan's coattails pretty much everywhere <laughs> uh, okay well with that we're going to take another break so shag can disinfect himself uh and then i will be back with a brand new pair of guests to cover the next story in this issue don't go away pope james are you kidding me <laughs> justice league international Bwahaha podcast a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the jli era by keith giffen and jm de mateus will be going issue by issue in release order tackling the core justice league title justice league europe and the quarterly book Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter Batman Doctor Fate Black Canary Fire Ice Maxwell Lord Oberon Captain Marvel Rocket Red Captain Adam Mr. Miracle Guy Gardner, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Nort, and many, many more. Justice League International, Blah Ha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? And we're back to discuss the second story from House of Mystery 294. This time I am joined by two of my favorite people, not just in podcasting, but in general. You know them as the husband-wife duo behind the Rad Adventures network of shows, such as Trekker Talk and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Please welcome Darren and Ruth Sutherland to the show. How are you, friends? Doing well. Glad to be here. Yeah, so nice to be back with you, Ryan. Thank you very, very much. Uh, I, I, we haven't had a, an occasion to talk on a podcast in a while. I think I've probably seen you in person more in the, like, the last couple of years than we've, than we've actually recorded something together. That's a good thing, too, because I like hanging out with you in person. <laughs> good to know. Good to know. Glad somebody does. Thank you. <laughs> <Now>, Cheers. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, I have heard you guys talk about your love for adventure serials, Robin Hood, Zorro, uh, Star Trek, all those things that you guys podcast about. I had not really heard you talk in much detail about horror until just this past October. I know uh, you, you started to do a little October special with your House of Horror minisodes, and I really, really enjoyed hearing about those. But uh, for the, our listeners, can you just give us a sense of what has been your your experience with the horror genre in general, whether that's in any kind of media? Uh, and then in particular, what about horror comics? Oh, cool. Thank you very much for plugging those episodes for us. We, we've been meaning to do that for 
so many years. It's just, you know, sometimes life gets in the way. Um, and we love, have always loved uh, Chris and Cindy Franklin's House of Frankenstein episodes. Mm-hmm. I remember the first year he did them, Chris and I messaged back and forth and we said, oh, I was telling him about, you know, the things I like. And he said, oh, we've got to, you know, have you on next year. And it's all that sort of stuff. And we always intend to, but it's just everybody gets too busy. Uh, but we've been planning to do our own little things. And we finally got a chance to this past fall. And I was so happy we did. And I, I liked the mini Zode approach. So we'll probably do more things like that in the future. But yeah, you're right. You know, we love adventure comics and we love science fiction and fantasy. And we don't talk so much about horror because what's interesting about our love of horror is we love what I would call gothic horror. So I think of, you know, the Universal Monster movies and the Hammer Horror films and the Night Stalker TV series, things that sort of have this, uh, you know, emphasis on villages and medieval periods and, uh, not graphic horror, but more mystery and suspenseful horror. Yeah, the atmosphere that keeps you on the edge of your seat. Yeah, so that's the stuff we love. I mean, I grew up with the the universal horror movies, and I love those, but the movies that are the big horror movies for me are the Hammer horror movies. I, I used to watch those any chance I got growing up. They would be on Saturday or Sunday afternoons and matinees or maybe Friday or Saturday late night TV, and I watched everyone I could, and Thanks to Ruth, I have a really nice collection of them on Blu-ray that she got from the UK Blu-rays because Hammer over there has done a really good job of restoring their films. But yeah, that's the stuff we love and the Night Stalker TV series we love. So uh, yeah, that's, that's our love of horror. Yeah, and I've said this before on previous podcasts. I am of the similar aesthetic, I guess, in that I prefer the gothic horror, the, the universal monsters. I was much more of a fan of the the horror that had a recognizable face attached to it and a sense of character with a lot of pathos more mm. so than the the you know the slasher genre although i can appreciate those to some extent but i you know give me lon chaney junior and and bella lugosi more than than any of the others so i agree i yeah. i like movies that draw me in and have a story and i'm really you know caring about what's going on rather than the ones that make me have nightmares so <laughs> i have to avoid those I agree completely, Ryan. And that comes through on this show. Well, yeah, I appreciate it. Um, And kind of in that same vein, to to spoil a little bit of the story that we're going to talk about, which is a ghost story, um, were there any, like, notable or particular ghost stories that you liked from the genre or just, you know, when growing up or anything? Well, what's interesting, uh, when you asked us to do this comic, I was, you know, I think Ruth and you exchanged messages first. I think I was at work or something. She was telling me about it later. And I, I was just like, oh, this is great to, to deal with because uh, these types of comics were ones I bought whenever I could find them when I was a kid. You know, I, I grew up in a little rural town that had a single grocery store with a single spinner rack. So I didn't always have a lot of variety or choice. But whenever I could find one of these sort of anthology type horror or mystery or science fiction comics, I always snatched them up because they reminded me of TV shows I liked, like, you know, The Twilight Zone or Night Gallery, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So I loved them. And it was really nice to revisit one thanks to your invitation. Great. All right, let's get into it. The story we're covering is Old Haunts, and it is written by Bruce Jones with art by Tom Yates, letters by John Costanza, and colors by Carl Gafford. 
when Judd Herschel inherits a stately mansion in the Pennsylvania Hills, he chooses to ignore the local superstition that the house is haunted, that tragic events happened there long ago, and some lingering dread from the past still lurks within the house. Night after night, Judd visits the mansion, wandering the ornate halls, admiring the craftwork. He frequently rests in one of the upstairs bedrooms, the site of an alleged murder-suicide that Judd dismisses. Until one night, the silence of the house is broken. Lying on the bed, Judd sees a light emanating from the hall, and a beautiful young woman holding a candle walks into the room. She tells Judd her name is Gretchen, and she is kept by the house. Then she runs, and by the time Judd follows her out into the hall, the girl has vanished. Every night for a week, the girl, Gretchen, returns. Over that time, Judd earns her trust, but she always runs away at the crack of dawn, claiming that ghosts cannot survive in the daylight. One night, he asks her what happened to her. Gretchen tells him that she and her husband moved into the house shortly after they were married. One night, she came home from work to find her husband Brad in the arms of another woman, her best friend, in fact, on the living room sofa. Gretchen was so devastated by their betrayal that she drew a small handgun and shot herself in the head. She slumped dead on the floor in front of the crackling fire in the fireplace. Judd listens to her story, but cannot believe the woman is a ghost. She seems far too alive and spirited to be dead. Night after night, he tries to convince her that she is no ghost, that she can leave the mansion and visit the nearby town, but she always leaves him at dawn. One night, before she appears, he performs a thorough search of the house. He finds food hidden in the kitchen, and eventually finds Gretchen hiding in a secret compartment upstairs. He confronts her about the food, that she has been shopping in town and living in the house in secret. She denies it, but he angrily forces her to revisit the story of the night she died. Gretchen tells the story differently this time. It was her husband Brad who came home early and found her on the couch with his best friend. Taking the pistol he kept to defend himself from a string of robberies, Brad shot his friend and then fled the house. Gretchen chased him to the car and got in before he could drive off. As Brad sped away, she tried to calm him down, but the road was covered in a heavy mist and Brad lost control of the car. It crashed into a ditch. Gretchen was thrown from the vehicle and passed out in the grass by the crackling fire of the car. By the time she woke up, everyone assumed that she had perished in the same crash, and Gretchen thought she might as well have, for she had driven her husband to his death. It was all her fault, and so she had been punishing herself for years by refusing to leave the house on the pretense that she is a ghost. At last, having confronted the truth, Judd convinces Gretchen to go outside the house. As the sun rises, they walk through the small family cemetery adjoining the property. Judd tells her it is time for her to really live again, and as the sun rises, he fades away. Confused, Gretchen looks around for where Judd vanished to, but all she finds is a gravestone marking where Judd Herschel had been buried. All right, Ruth, what did you think of this story? Oh, I thought it was a good read and it had a nice twist. I did not see that coming. 
I really did like how Judd was concerned and had a desire to help heal her. And he was patient and he was determined to make a difference in her life. So that was, you know, a really good character for me that he wanted to make a difference. Yeah, it, it's good standard fare. I read this and I just, uh, I really enjoyed revisiting this genre and this format again. And I thought, yeah, this is why I loved all of these. So okay. I read it and I thought, yeah, I know there's going to be a twist coming. And I was trying to figure out what it was going to be. I knew it would be there. And uh, it just like Ruth said, I, I didn't figure out what it was going to be, but it was a really nice twist. I love the atmosphere of the old house. You know, there's always a good fun to be had in an old house story like this. So I really liked that. And I will add that I thought it was clever. There was a line where Judd was saying that he did not he did not say that he didn't believe in ghosts, but rather he was saying to her that he did not believe she was a ghost. And I thought that was just so on target later once I knew that he was really the ghost instead. Yeah, I remember when we read it, Ruth was so excited. She said, now, wait a minute. I remember she asked him if he believed in ghosts. Let me go back and see what he said. So <laughs> she was really pleased that the writing was on target, that, you know, he, the character didn't lie. He he gave us the information we needed to possibly figure it out. We just didn't. Yeah, for a simple uh, eight-page story, I mean, Bruce Jones was a really good horror writer. Um, uh, I've I'm been a fan of his stuff. He also tangentially related to the horror. He had one of my favorite runs on The Incredible Hulk in the 2000s. Yes. Um, I think Michael Bailey and I are the only people who've ever sung the praises for that run because it came <laughs> after Peter David's. But yeah, I, I really like this stuff. And, and you're right, like they're... He he, kind of like smartly crafts this this thing where you know, I mean, you're planning from the beginning, you're expecting this reveal, and the way she tells the story of her her death, you know, the the things that she hits upon in the beginning with the mist covering the road, and her dying like by as the like next to the fire and seeing the crackling flames, and the positions of you know who being on the couch with the significant others like friend or something like that, all of those themes repeat but mm-hmm. in slightly different ways when you get the true story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I really like that. You know, it wasn't the fireplace, it was the burning car, and it was still the mist that she remembered the first time, only this time. The reason she remembered it was because the mist was the reason that the car went off the road. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Very, very well crafted. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there were a few things that I kind of thought were... They didn't bother me, but I they were I, I will say they weren't problems with the story, but I felt like they were seeds that were planted that maybe could have been developed, like the things like with was she actually having an affair, like 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 with her her husband's best friend, or was it a truly a miscommunication or something like that mm-hmm. when he when he came home and saw them? If they had given a little bit of clarification of that, maybe that guilt would have uh, fought, reinforced her desire, her 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 guilt and her shame and the, and the sense that she believed that she had driven her husband to his death. I had that same thought, Ryan, as we were reading through it. It's like it works perfectly well as an eight-page story, but I thought the same thing. There were a few places here and there where I felt, oh, it was just a little rushed. I'd like a little more time with this or that. And I think that's exactly the type of stuff that maybe might have made it a little more solid. It's still a good, pleasant read, but there were a couple of places like that where I had the same feeling. Yeah, and and because we don't really know anything more about those characters, the third person in the room, whether it's this this guy Phil or in her her tale, like the her version of the story, the the woman, 
And then we get Judd, and it's a nice little twist at the end where we find out, oh yeah, he's been the ghost. And he was the ghost all along, and that's why the story was always told at night, and, and he never left the house, and we only ever saw him wandering. And his dialogue does reinforce, you know, when, when he says, you know, he, he, he doesn't deny the existence of ghosts. He's just like, this girl can't be a ghost. And But I also felt like should we have known more about him as a character? Like, w- could he have factored into the story? Maybe was he the other man, that the, the Phil character that she was, you know, on the couch with? That might explain kind of why he seemed to love her and wanted to help her so much. Um, but there's also, like, this, this story, you know, why does he keep going to the bedroom? And if that was a set of a murder-suicide, are we just... I, I kind of just assumed that there was another tragedy in this house's background before, like, before Gretchen and her husband moved in. You mentioned so many interesting things there, because uh, when Ruth and I were reading it, the first thing out of Ruth's mouth, she said, why does he only go walk around this house at night? <laughs> so <laughs> she said that really early on. And then when we got to the end of the story, I started flipping back saying, wait a minute, what did we get the guy's name who was on the couch earlier? Because I had the same thought as you. I wanted I wanted Judd to factor in more. It's another one of those sort of like, I felt there was a, another seed there, just like you said, that I wanted to know a little more about. I guess it's good that we wanted to know more than if he had given us too much, but I definitely would have liked Two to four more pages of this would have been great. And that's a sign of a good story when it causes you to ask questions and mm. you to have wanted more time, more information. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And I, I want to be clear. I didn't feel like the story was unfulfilling or that, you know, it was half baked or something like that. It wasn't a problem. It was just when I got to the end, I was like, mm, maybe just a little bit of tweaking or one more page could have really like tightened this, this and like hammered it home a little bit stronger. You could have done something mm-hmm. more with that. Um, but it wasn't that the story was unsatisfying because I, I still thought it was really solid. I agree completely. Moving on to the art, uh, and and I will be honest. Once I looked at the credits page of this, when I first saw, it, I was like, "Oh, Tom Yates!" I flashed <laughs> to a memory, and I was like, "I'm going to ask Darren and Ruth," um, because I, I remember we were at Heroes Con a couple of years ago, yes. and I was just kind of like thinking of like things to like fill in my sketchbook and it was ruth's suggestion i think that i go see tom yates uh because yes. of, he, he had worked on swamp thing for so long and i was like oh yeah that's right i definitely want to get Tom Yates. and i did but instead of a swamp thing i got a very quick he did it in like you know two, two to four minutes or something a very quick zorro sketch uh, just a headshot um it's and, wonderful i remember it yeah that's yeah. when when you um when Ruth told me uh, about the comic that we were going to be reading, I thought I just said yes right away to the comic. I said, oh, I know I'll enjoy this. And then when I got it and uh, read it, I'm like, Tom Yates. Oh, this is a gift from Ryan to us <laughs> because we all three met Tom Yates together at Heroes Con. What a nice memory. You got that fantastic Zorro. I have a photo of you with that Zorro. Mm. And I uh, we loved it because, you know, we love Zorro, too. Yeah, and uh, yeah. And he loves Zorro. That's the nice thing. You know, you you, re, you go to Tom Yates website and it's like he's done all this other stuff. But what he loves is, you know, Zorro and Tarzan and Prince Valiant. 
And, so it, it's a gift. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, and I maybe like two months after we had that encounter with him, uh, Siskoid and I talked about Zorro versus Dracula, the, the yeah. two-issue series that Tom Yates did. Uh, we did that on one of the early issues of FW Team Up. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and so that was a lot of fun because I remember that was when, yeah, I think that was one of the other things. When you mentioned Tom Yates, I was like, oh, yeah, Swamp Thing. Also, I'm going to be doing the Zorro, the Zorro and Dracula <laughs> story with Siskoid in a couple months. Like, I should, yeah. But the second, when you get to page two of the story, the first panel, which is, which is just um, Judd just like leaning back with his arms up and looking out, just kind of like waiting. I saw his mustache in that panel. I was like, Zorro, that is Tom <laughs> That is what he drew on my picture, on the, the sketch he drew. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. I see it. <laughs> yep, got that mustache. Um, but beyond the, the personal connection, I really dig the art in this. I, I, I think Tommy is great at capturing the sort of atmospheric, moody, gothic nature, which is why he was so good. He did the first year of Swamp of Saga of the Swamp Thing before Alan Moore came aboard, and then he jumped back on the title, I think, during the Rick Veach years. And this was this story was fairly early in his career. Uh, mm-hmm. I think he had just recently before this done a story in Detective Comics 500. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this is these are really like the the emotion on Gretchen's faces in some of these panels, like just like the the sheerness of her nightgown on page two, and like the the look when she's when she's haunted by this memory on page three. I really like this art. I really do too. It's part of the the special thing about it. I mean, we both took some nice notes about the story, but we both ended up with more notes about the art for an eight page story. You know, you have more notes about the art, uh, but I mean, you know, he gets it off to a an amazing start with just page one. I mean. The, the perspective he used for the house, you know, it, it makes it look imposing, but it's also sort of at an angle, so it almost looks askew. So it just, um, it really is a great creepy effect. And I love that you mentioned one of my favorite things about the art, which is the sort of parallels of when she's telling the story, mm-hmm. how you you see those images again, but slightly different as the story changes. And I, I especially like the one where. You see her during the first telling of the story through the fireplace with the fire burning in front of her. And then you see that same image again at the end when you learn it's really the car accident and you yeah. see her laying on the ground through the fire. Yeah, yeah I just really loved that. It's a nice echo and repetition there. I liked it. Yeah, absolutely. And Ruth, I know you liked a couple of things in particular, oh, yeah. too. I wanted to point out page five was one of my favorites. I really liked the layout of the panels. I thought there was a really good use of light and shadow. The banister and the stairs and him searching for the hiding place was a really good contrast, I thought, to that kind of in the center on the left, that very colorful part. And that's when he's excited and standing on the bed and describing the beauty of nature outdoors, really trying to get her to go outside and embrace life. And that just really fit the mood of what he was trying to push her toward being alive, embracing life and living. So just with the color and contrast there, it was very effective. Mm -hmm. Really nice art. Yeah, I, I like that too. Like just his positioning of standing up with his arms out and everything, and just trying to, just trying to like get her up. And I mean, that's such a. And I don't know if that was in the script or not. It doesn't seem like the kind of detail that you would script. But the fact that he's just standing on the bed and like almost like jumping and like throwing his <laughs> arms up, like that's such a that body language is such a 
like trying to get her to like just stand up, get on the bed, jump up, have, like live. Right. Just like it's such a a fun kind of action. It's like take advantage of your life. You're not dead. I promise you. And and then contrasting that with the next panels on there, like boarding the same one, when you see him opening the cabinet and seeing the food mm-hmm. in there, and the camera is positioned from inside the cabinet, so we're looking mm-hmm. out at his mm-hmm. face as his eyes, and it's all in shadow. But we see his eyes seeing that, and he's he's saying, "My God," you know, as he's making this you know kind of deductive connection. Yeah, I yeah. really like that. I like that panel too. It's it adds so much mystery to it as you're looking through the cabinet at his face and his reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good visual storytelling with that page. Yeah, I, I mean, I, this was a really enjoyable, fun little ghost story. Um, you know, it plays on a lot of the themes and the tropes that you're familiar with, but it does give it the nice little spin. Uh, it's it's not overly complicated, but I, I gosh, I wish there was just like. There were just like one or two more pages, as you said, Darren. If we could have just flushed this out and and maybe tied Judd to the to the actual event that that Gretchen, you know, she's been haunted by all these years, or at right. least kind of gave some sort of clarification of of the nature of him. But I mean, maybe that's maybe part of ghost stories is the the ambiguity, and that's that's something yeah. that we're left with. But yeah, um, but the story now is standing. I mean, that's the art really. It just I, I was so happy to see this. The name just. Tom Yates' name, and then every page turned. I was like, oh, this is so good. I can't wait to talk it, about this. It is. Every page is great. Yeah, this was, this was so fun. I, I thank you. Do you guys have any other notes before we go? No, I think that we covered everything really well. This was fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for, for talking about this, and uh, we will definitely need to make some sort of occasion to talk more again in the future. Uh, until the next time we do talk, though, why don't you tell our listeners where else they can find you? Well, this this is a perfect story to introduce your listeners to us because Tom Yates is connected to every one of our main podcasts. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Tom Yates is a member of the first graduating class of the Cuber School. Ron Randall, who does the comic series Trekker, is in the second graduating school. Tom Yates and Ron Randall are good friends. They know each other well, so we know them through that. So check out our Trekker Talk podcast. You mentioned we also talked about Prince Valiant, so... Tom Yates has been the artist on Prince Valiant since 2012, I think. And Mark Schultz, who does Xenozoic Tales, is the writer of Prince Valiant. So we know also a connection through the two of them. So check out our Xenozoic Xenophiles podcast. And also Tom Yates used to do backup stories in the Warlord comics by Mike Grell. So uh, we got a connection there to our Warlord Worlds podcast. So this was made for us, Ryan. Thank (laughs) Thank you, you, Ryan. (laughs) It's almost as if someone was planning this. (laughs) <laughs> you're you're a good plotter and planner. <laughs> All right. Thank you once again for joining me on this. I had a lot of fun. Uh, listeners, there's one more story to cover in this issue, which means we are going to take another promo break right now, and then I will come back for that story with another guest. Don't go away. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren of the Rad Adventures Network. We're a married couple who enjoy great stories of all kinds, including adventures, mysteries, science fiction, and fantasy. Please join us for a variety of podcasts focused on a range of pop culture topics. Trekker Talk is about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. It's a blend of classic sci-fi adventures and noir mysteries set in a retro future. Xenozoic Xenophiles is about the comic Xenozoic Tales by writer and artist Mark Schultz. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. 
Warlord Worlds covers the many comics of writer and artist Mike Grell, including The Warlord, John Sable, Green Arrow, and The Legion of Superheroes. Sensational Sleuths, where we talk about favorite mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. Fantastic Fantasies, where we share our favorite fantasy films and books. And Amazing Adventures, where we discuss action-packed adventure stories. Listen on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or visit RadAdventuresNetwork.com to find all of our shows and links to our social media pages. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. All right, we are back for our third and final story in this issue, and to help me talk about it is a longtime fan of the Fire and Water Network, making his return to Midnight the Podcasting Hour. Please welcome Jimmy McGlinchey back to the house. What's up, Jimmy? Hi, Ryan. Uh, Glad to be back in the House of Mystery and glad to be on the network again. Shag, you're supposed to have me on for JLI fairly soon, so... (laughs) (laughs) I can't speak for him, so I have no idea how long it'll take to get to that episode. I know. (laughs) Uh, The last time you were on, were we talking about a Bernie Wrightson story? We were talking about a Bernie Wrightson story, All in the Family. All in the Family, that was the one. I couldn't remember what it was. Yes, that was the one. has one of my favorite covers with the the blonde woman shrieking at the very Lovecraftian sort of monster coming out of the basement. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, it was very. It was a very good story, and um, it was it was uh, the whole episode actually. With um, I think it was Siskoid as well was on it doing a Swamp Thing episode. And I think I, I did Sean Ross Sean with Ross. the uh, the yeah. cats the cats story. Yeah, that was yeah. a very good episode. In fairness, despite my contribution, but <laughs> no, you were as worthy as the others. That's the reason why I asked you back. Um, and yeah, for this story, we're talking about the last story in House of Mystery two ninety four. This is a story called with a very fun title. Congratulations, Mister Bates. It's a warlock. This story is written by Paul Kupperberg, penciled by George Tusca, inked by Tony Disniga, lettered by Todd Klein, and colored by Jerry Serpe. Jimmy, would you do the honors and tell the story? I'd be glad to, Ryan. The story begins with John Bates pacing in the corridor of the maternity hospital. He is worried that his wife Muriel has been inside the birthing suite for so long. However, as he begins to wonder how much more longer it will take, the door opens and the doctor steps out to give the good news that he's now the proud father of a fine, healthy warlock. Oops, get to mention that John and Muriel Bates are both witches. Sorry about that. Despite the Bates being witches, they do lead a relatively normal life with certain exceptions, like access to a doctor who is also a witch. The doctor confirms to the couple that the boy is completely healthy and also possesses the full power of witchcraft. While this power will remain dormant for some time, he believes that at the time of the next full moon, the child should be initiated into the ranks of witchcraft. While this pleases Muriel, the news fills John with dread as he returns back to their apartment. For John has been struggling for some time with living the life of a witch. Due to their lifestyle, the Bates have no close friends, for fear they will find out their secret lives. Does he want this life for his son, for the coven to develop his powers? He does not, so he calls his lawyer, William J. Martin, and asks that he get a court injunction to stop his wife and the coven from turning his son into a full-blown witch. While skeptical, he manages to obtain said injunction, and the two proceeds to the hospital to inform John's wife. 
Muriel is less than pleased to hear what her husband has done, and with a flick of her wrist, she sets the injunction of paper in flames, causing William to drop it. She berates John for doing this without her consent, to which her husband replies that if he had her consent, it would not be necessary. John argues that he has been mixed up in witchcraft too long and has always been unhappy with that lifestyle. He does not want his son to go through what he had done. Muriel counters that she should have some say in the matter, but John says no, and that if she insisted, he would take her to court. At that, John and a shaken William depart. A number of weeks later, an unusual case comes before Judge J.P. Ostrander's court in New York City, Bates versus Bates. William Martin's opening statement puts the argument that John's rights as a father allows him to deny his son an upbringing that he believes would be detrimental to his son's well-being. Muriel's counsel, Mr. Oliver, counters that there is no evidence to suggest that living the way of a witch is wrong and argues that Muriel has a right to raise her son to follow in her beliefs and that John cannot deny her son a heritage that is rightfully his. William Martin brings John Bates to the stand and John insists that being a witch is a lonely life that normal people either fear them or that witches fear normal people would uncover their secrets. Therefore, he does not want to subject his son to that life. On cross-examination, however, Mr. Oliver makes John reveal that his lonely life was because of his choices, not because of being a witch. As John is the only witness for the prosecution, it does not look good for this case. However, the defense's witnesses, while numerous, are so outlandish in defending the witch's lifestyle that the doubting Judge Ostrander would not put any faith in their testimonies. During a recess in the proceedings, William Martin reckons that the judge will be favourable to their case. At that point, however, Muriel arrives with their baby and demands to speak to John alone. Despite William's protests, John agrees. He asks Muriel to reconsider and agree with his position. Muriel concedes that she was not going to win her case in court. However, she argues that there was one person's opinions who both John and Muriel failed to take into consideration, the babies. And as she holds up the baby, John Bates shudders at the strange, almost evil smile on his son's face. The baby raises his hand and John screams. William Martin bursts into the room but can only find Muriel and the baby there. No one ever saw John again after that day. It was as if he had vanished from the face of the earth. The only remembrance was the baby's new teddy bear which had a tie reminiscent of the one John Bates wore on the day he was last seen. The end. Whew, all right. Quite a kicker of an ending there. A, a nice, little, nice little twist on the, <laughs> at the end, all right. <laughs> so what did you think of the story? It was a, it, it's a very interesting story, and I suppose the story itself is... It's just interesting to see, I suppose, witches, which you sort of think of supernatural, to see them in this sort of a normal setting, in a sort of a, in a sort of a basically a household setting where where the marriage is in effect, I suppose, failing, and they have gone to court to try and settle their differences. So um, just to see the story in in that aspect, where you're outside the sort of the supernatural and just more grounded in the reality, which is a which makes it a nice change from sort of I suppose the normal stories that you would see in House of Mystery. Yeah, it's a very. I think Paul Kupperberg took a couple of chances, and he did some very interesting things with this story. I'm not sure they all paid off. On the one hand, you're right. He's absolutely taking this fantastical element of witchcraft and, and sorcery and grounding it in the most basic kind of pedestrian thing, which is a civil court 
filing between a, a husband and wife and a, a husband trying to get an injunction against his wife's essentially religion, her, her, her religious practice, and trying to stop this. And and how much more just sort of like everyday, commonplace, human, and not fantastical can you get from that? So I do think he's really t- doing something interesting with that. At the same time, he it, it might go so far because throughout the story, like the the one problem that I kept coming and butting my head with that was kind of keeping me at an arm's distance from this was what is so detrimental or so injurious about being a witch or a warlock in this case? Like I couldn't understand John Bates's position. He kept saying, you know, he doesn't want his his son to grow up, you know, leading the same lifestyle. It's like, well, what is it? I mean, obviously these these witches can lead pretty normal lives because that's they they seem to be a normal, otherwise happily married couple. And I mean, like they they can they can be successful in society. There's a witch or a warlock doctor that they have. They have their own practice and everything like that. So it doesn't seem like they're ostracized from society because society doesn't know about them. The judge doesn't believe these are real people are really witches. He thinks they're whack jobs. So, yeah. like he he keeps saying, you know, we we're terrified that people will find out our secrets. Like it doesn't seem like it's a tough secret to keep. And, yeah, and, and if you can just look at a piece of paper and incinerate it, like I, I, I don't know. I'm just like, like I, I never saw the negative effect of like why he hates being a warlock or being part of this witchcraft. And when he says he, he like his whole case is built on like it's it's a it's a lonely lifestyle and everything. Well, when he's he's on court, he has to admit that it's not being a witch that has made me lonely. It's my own shortcomings. And I suppose the other thing that is probably a problem in the plot is that he's afraid of people knowing that he's a witch and yet he's bringing the case to public court where he's admitting that he's a witch (laughs) exactly exactly yeah it was interesting because i found paul kupperberg's the writer's blog and he mentions the story and he says that he actually based this on the film kramer versus kramer yeah i kind of assume yeah yeah so that was probably two years ago and um i suppose it was it was it was supposed it was a nice thing to use that as a sort of a basis for a supernatural story but as you said the whole problem was sort of like john it's it's his own choices that he's saying oh you know like I'm hiding away because, you know, like I'm a witch. Mm -hmm. But he has apparently from looking at the bits that they have in the story that, as you said, that they have medical facilities where they're they're witches. I'm assuming that uh, Muriel's council is probably in witchcraft as well. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, like so they have a sort of a grouping, but he just seems to want something more than that, which doesn't really make sense, I think. yeah, the whole time it felt like Kupperberg was, you know, drawing a, a social commentary with this, um, whether it was based specifically on the plot of the film or not. But it felt like he was using witches as a substitute for some other kind of social group, be it a religious or, or some other kind of group. Like, yeah. if you had substituted some sort of orthodoxy or religion for this, you know, whatever it yeah. was, you could have like kind of found like the, basically the same plot play out without the supernatural beats at the end. Um, and what does that say about the lead character if he's somebody who is part of this faith and this pre- this belief system, but hates it and kind of like resents himself and his own lifestyle? Like, what are we supposed to like him? Are we supposed to feel sympathetic for him? Because I'm not sure I ever did. So it's 
again, like this story brought up a lot of really interesting ideas and I was kind of fascinated by the premise and where it was going, but there were just a couple of these little things that were, I felt like maybe it needed another page of explanation, but things also like moved kind of like at a clip. I mean, we, we get, I mean, within these like seven pages, we get a good chunk of like courtroom drama and like legal proceedings with, you know, like the two different sides making their cases and, and actually Kane has to, has to interject and say, boy, lawyers really talked a lot. Let's skip ahead a little bit. <laughs> I like that beat a lot. Yes, that, that was, that was very good there. Now, I was actually just doing a bit of research on it just to see. In, in sort of similar cases, what would happen in the US, I just looked up a blog and parents have the right to direct the upbringing and education of their children. And that a Supreme Court's court case has says that parents also have the right to direct religious upbringing. So in a case when the court is deciding, well, what religion should the ch- child be sort of doing? It's basically that the court will just basically be looking at would the religious practice cause harm to the child Mm -hmm. and if so you know like or if there's a risk of harm but in general cases that they will say it would be the custodial parent will decide that was the other thing in the story it was that it just seems to be deciding on the religion i mean was there a case as well that both john and muriel were actually divorcing as a result of this or were they just purely just discussing on the i suppose the upbringing of the child as a witch and that there was they were both staying together in which case you know like if either side won the case then the the family units sort of staying together as a result yeah because you kind of wonder i mean if if john still considers himself a part of this a witch or a warlock can he separate himself for that or I mean, it, it, again, it, like now, now I'm asking the question, like, well, what is a witch or a warlock in this world, like within this story? Like, how do they define this witchcraft? Because when the doctor comes in, and I love the the doctor's face, like the way he's drawn, um, and, yeah. and I, I do want to come back to the art after this point, but like he mentions that they did genetic testing to determine that the child will have the power of the witch or the warlock in this case. Uh, and they are like, yeah, he's off the charts on like whatever testing they have. So they do have these powers, but he says they have to wait a certain amount of time for the child to undergo some sort of ceremonial rites. So there is a kind of like passage and thing like that to, to kind of induct him into this. And that's what John is trying to stop. That's why he's bringing this to court first to, to prevent this. So can John, stop being part of being a witch or a warlock or whatever like can he just like like separate himself and if it's not just a a practice of worship but if they actually have powers based on genetics or dna that's not something you can separate <laughs> like, i mean as yeah. as we see like it doesn't matter by the end of it because the child who has no mind or agency of himself turns his turns his father into a stuffed teddy bear basically like yeah. kills his father and like like that should be the the concern that a baby has this amount of power and no control over it that is just subject to these whims. Yeah. So it's, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, it would make sense then it's for the purely for the safety of the child that he would have to sort of um, be taught in the, mm-hmm. the 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 manner of witchcraft. And actually, just going back on that as well, the, like the doctor had said that power. But it said he said it was going to remain dormant for some time. But so at the end of the story, he is able to sort of turn 
his father into a teddy bear. So did Muriel actually go through the initiation? Well, John was sort of busy trying to get his case in, 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 in point. So, you know, like, or it was it just something that the baby just managed to say, yeah, I want, I want to keep the witchcraft powers yeah. and just snap the fingers and uh, bye-bye I, daddy. I caught that too. Yeah, the doctor said his, the powers will manifest like in a few years. But then on the bottom of page six, one of the, one of the defense's witnesses, uh, this old woman with – God, with hair on her chin. Um, <laughs> she says, why the Bates family has the most powerful magical aura I have ever seen in a man or child, suggesting that maybe it didn't matter. Maybe the baby's powers manifested much earlier than the do- even the doctor would have uh, supposed. Um, now, is that like the power coming from Muriel or is it coming from John? I mean, we never actually see John use these powers, and if he is – uh, a self-hating warlock, then I, I can understand why he would deny that, why he would suppress those powers. But it's just, yeah, it's interesting. I wonder, is there something in that maybe John is sort of just, again, this is something that we're just trying to pull together here because it's not in the story, but maybe John wasn't a witch from the start that when he met Muriel, he sort of got into the sort of the... I suppose the witchcraft lifestyle. He converted, basically. He yeah. convert, yeah. He converted as, as part of his marriage, and maybe now he's sort of just saying, "Okay, I've, I'm in this for so many years, and and it's, this is not for me." So that's that's possible. And again, I mean, then again, I butt my head up against. It's like, well, is it just a a religion, a religion, and a belief system? But then, what about the aspect where they actually can they can burn things just by looking at them? And exactly. That's that's more than just a a system of worship. That is a a supernatural power, uh, according to the doctor. That is based on genetics. So, can he call himself a witch or a warlock if he doesn't have those powers? If he just converted by, you know, taking whatever sort of rights? Or I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I I do have all of these questions and I am confused, but the thing is, like, I didn't have a negative reaction to the story. I still really enjoyed this story. It's fun. Um, and getting to the art side of it, um, you know, it's penciled by George Tusca, who isn't an artist that would ever excite me. I, I don't see his name and I was like, oh, yeah, George Tusca. He's... I think he's serviceable when it comes to soap opera and human stories. So it's fine for this type of story, which mostly takes place in, you know, either doctors, like, you know, like hospital rooms or a courthouse, you know, that you don't need a whole lot of, you know, fanciful art for this. But I do think that Tony Dizaniga's art really enhances the story, his inking. Yes. Um, he, he really lays some heavy shadows on this, like right from the beginning, gives everything a much more sinister tone. John Bates himself, like the, the deep shadows under his eyes and his beard, he looks like a sort of satanic evil guy. It's funny that we, like he's the one who's kind of rejecting this, this power and this religion and the one that we're supposed to feel sympathy for. He looks like the classic guy who would be the cult leader, the guy that you would be worried about throughout the story. You, yeah, exactly. And Muriel looks like the type of she looks relatively normal in this, you know, like and yeah, John John is the person that you'd be sort of thinking, Oh, that's that is that's the bad guy. Mm-hmm. But uh, it doesn't it doesn't end up like that. But yeah, the inks on this are the sort of the darkness there where just after Muriel has has 
turned the injunction paper into fire, there's a shot of um, John and it's sort of like you can just see half of his face and the other half is completely black in shadow and it's just... Mm-hmm. You know, like he's just saying, I've been mixed up with witchcraft too long and I've always been unhappy. And you can just, the, I suppose the art just sort of accentuates what he, what, what he's sort of trying to say in that, in, 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 in the, in the word balloon. Yeah. Yeah. The color noticeably drops out of the room in that whole little sequence as you see the severity of it. This is our first demonstration where these, this witchcraft, these powers do exist and that these, you know, this is an irreconcilable fight that these people are going to fight it out in court. Um, I also, I love the way that they actually integrate Kane into the story. Um, uh, at first, at first on the first page, he's in the, ho- in the hospital just kind of like introducing the story into him. And we do get his floating head from panel to panel. But then in that sequence, that same page on page four, like after, uh, she burns the paper and everything when, uh, John is storming out with his, do- with his lawyer, Martin Kane is just there, like in the background, just in the hallway, <laughs> like a janitor, like he's got like a mop yeah. or a broom or something. Like he's going to clean up the burned ashes from the injunction. Uh, and then later on when they're at the court, Kane is actually the bailiff who's like, Calling yes, out he's ca- calling out the case. <laughs> yeah. I lo- I really liked how they integrated him into the story. I thought that was good. Yeah, it was very good. The only thing that I just just on the art, and I just noticed that um, if you look at what Muriel is wearing throughout, like even from the time that she's sort of in the bed, she's wearing nearly the exact same clothes <laughs> from when she was when she had birthed the baby to when she was she went into court. She's wearing a like a red like yeah it's like a, a formal evening gown like with like thin <laughs> straps a very low cut so you get the cleavage and yeah it's like red you get the whole thing she's she's wearing the same thing in court and in the hospital after giving birth. <laughs> she's she 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 likes she likes to dress up for the occasion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the, yeah, the art again, it's I'm not really familiar with George Tusca, but. He's he's very good in the sort of I suppose just the presentation of the I suppose the court scenes mm-hmm. and I must say at the end there when you're looking at the baby and you see the baby's face when he's putting his hand out to cast his spell you can see the evilness in his eyes there mm-hmm. <laughs> this third last panel it's absolutely beautiful and then it it turns angelic then for the very last panel as he's just holding up the the teddy bear with his his father's tie wrapped around the teddy bear yeah yeah this little beat there yeah um so. yeah i mean again like i i think i like as i was reading the story i kept saying all right uh i don't know if i buy this i'm not sure if this makes sense but i'm i'm digging it i like the art it's moving at a, a fast enough case and it's just it's interesting it's a really interesting dynamic and in the setup that Cupperberg is bringing i'm fascinated by so that kind of kept me intrigued and kept me reading along and then just the the reveal the horrific beat at the end and and what the baby does to his father i just thought that was like that that was a nice enough twist that overall Despite having some questions and concerns about the the mechanics of the story, I liked it. Uh, so I, I thought this was a fun one. Yes, it was. A, it was. It was a nice. It was. A, it's. It's a nice change from sort of like I suppose your typical uh, house of mystery story. Just to have it sort of based in in a sort of a Kramer versus Kramer type of situation, and I suppose. 
looking at it and we're we're pulling we're pulling at a few strings, but as a seven pager, it's, it's Paul Copperberg sort of keeps the pace going nice and quickly, and he, he, we come up with a nice little twist at the end. So, yeah. very good story. Yeah, very very fun. Uh, Jimmy, thank you very much for coming back on the show and, and talking about this one with me. Uh, I always love talking to you, and and great to great to go through this one. Thank you very much, uh, Ryan. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be asked back, and uh, I look forward to seeing more um, Midnight Podcasting Hour podcasts coming coming up shortly. Yeah, hopefully, and uh, I'm definitely looking forward to whenever you guys, you and Shag, get together to record a JLI appearance. That should be a lot of fun, too. Yeah. So. Thanks very much. Okay, listeners, we are going to take one last promo break, and then I will be back to read your comments from the previous episode. Don't go away. call him Lucky Wilbur. You may call him Bobby. You may call him Zimmy. But the world calls him Bob Dylan. It's Pod Dylan, the only podcast dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Okay, as you heard me and Shag discuss at the beginning of this show, the last episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour was the Christmas special, where I reviewed Elvira's House of Mystery special with my guests, Dr. Ange of the Supergirl blog, Martin Gray of the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog, Kyle Benning of the KSCGSF podcast, and Pat Sampson of the Longbox Crusade. The first comment that episode received on the Fire and Water Network website was from Gord Tolton, who said, Best present ever in this issue? The return of Kyle Benning to podcasting. You are missed, Kyle. Merry Christmas to your family and yourself. I heartily agree with that, and again, you can hear some of Kyle's old podcasts that he has re-released on the KSC GSF feed. That's for king-sized comics, giant-sized fun. Martin Gray chimed in, Well, that was a podcast and a half, and no mistake, Governor. It was great hearing the other fellas talk this comic. I especially liked your reading, Ryan, of the Dave Manick script. It really brought it to life. Well, thank you, Martin. Uh, he goes on, I wish the UK had horror hosts on TV. Did they have some value for the sponsors? And was there a male Elvira, i.e. a haunted hottie? <laughs> Uh, uh, there was never one quite like Elvira, no. Um, there were definitely male horror hosts. There were quite a lot of them, actually. I'm sure they outnumbered the female horror hosts, actually. Uh, I think probably the most famous one is the character Sven Gulli from the 1970s, but yeah, there were a ton. Count Floyd. Uh, actually, when Shag was on the last time, he talked about it. There was one from his local TV station, Count Zapula, I think, something like that. Um, yeah, they were, they were big. However, <laughs> I don't think any of them used sex as their gimmick the way Elvira did. Most of them were like Dracula or Mad Scientist parodies. Not what you would call a haunted hottie. Uh, but if you wanted to trademark that idea, I think maybe we can develop something. So, 
Uh, Lizanne Oswald said, Sounds like a cool comic. The first story is not bad. The art is good. The second was kind of funny. Glad the bad guy got it in the end, even if it is because Santa's vision was going bad. Pretty funny. I'm not a big fan of the last story, just not my thing. Still a cool horror Christmas comic. Can't wait to hear the next one. Now you've heard it. Hope it was worth it. Uh, Bradley Null said, I love Christmas and spooky stuff mixing. I'm also a fan of DC horror hosts interacting with the DCU, Kane tricking Mixie, and like 30% of the characters in Sandman. I'm a fan of the cheesy movie hosts because of Elvira. For me, that's where it starts. So I should like this comic more than I do. Maybe it was just too much so bad it's good clashing in a boring way. I'm just not a fan of the comic. But your coverage made it fun. What you did for this Elvira comic is what Elvira does for bad movies. That's a great thing. I love it. Well, as long as the episode was entertaining, I don't care if anybody likes the comic or not. Uh, Chris Franklin from JLU Cast on this network said, I watched Elvira's first film over the Halloween season for the first time in decades. I forgot how funny it was. I really need to see the follow-up, 20 years later, Elvira's Haunted Hills. I'll be honest, I sometimes wince at black humor Christmas tales, and despite loving almost every version of A Christmas Carol, I don't care for Christmas mixed with horror, especially Killer Santas. But for the most part, these were clever and in the vein of the old EC morality tales. I'm not sure about the last one, though. A little too bleak for me, personally. Too bad they only did this one issue. This would be a nice tradition. Yeah, yeah, this would have been cool to do more often. And the last comment came from Diablo Frank from the World Spy Network, who shared his thoughts on the stories and the cover art, and said, I refuse to believe that a man who has compiled two volumes of Christmas music for a nerd-centric audience has never heard of Christmas at Ground Zero, a holiday radio staple since 1986. Admittedly, I saw UHF theatrically and occasionally taped Dr. Demento broadcasts, which helps explain why I still remember most of the lyrics decades after the last time I heard it, but surely it's still alternating with Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer every other hour from Black Friday? I have had three different people approach me about doing a Weird Al episode of Fire and Water Records, and that is an episode that I would love to to listen to, but I don't think I would have much to say. I've never listened to a lot of Weird Al. I've I've heard his stuff. I don't dislike him. I think he's an absurdly talented guy who to do the things that he does and do it so well. I have all the respect in the world for him. I, and, and actually, my wife has seen him live. She saw him before we met. I just... I, oh, and I, and I also I have a story about the song Trapped in the Drive-Thru, um, but that's really it. Uh, I, I mean, I just I, I don't know what else I would say on that episode, but I mean, if I could orchestrate a Weird Al episode with different hosts, not me, um, otherwise just bring on a couple of people and I would just moderate or facilitate the episode, that would be fun. Because, again, I would love to hear more people talk about that material. I just don't have a personal connection to it. Um... By the way, Frank, I might have to do the same thing for the Beastie Boys episode that you keep shoving at me. 
Uh, Frank also said, I used to watch Movie Macabre nearly every weekend, saw Mistress of the Dark theatrically, and had a pin-up poster of Elvira applying moon tan lotion hanging on my wall, so I was a mark for this podcast. In sheer numbers, and especially in proportion of run, I was far more likely to buy an issue of House of Mystery with her rather than without. While it wasn't a full tomahawk bait and switch, I still resented that the series was more House of Mystery and less Elvira's. I wish they'd gone full MST3K on inventory material, instead of treating her as just another Crypt Keeper stand-in. I agree with that. That would have been good. Um, that would be fodder in itself for podcast, or it would make the podcast redundant, probably. But Anyway, those were the comments that we got on the Fire & Water website, and I want to thank everyone who wrote in, as well as everyone who helped promote us on Facebook and Twitter, with likes, shares, favorites, retweets, and such. The next episode, which should drop next month, and I can say that with some degree of confidence since it's mostly been recorded already, that will feature the return of Rob Kelly to talk about an issue of Swamp Thing and Mike Gillis to talk about a Spectre story from Adventure Comics. You better be looking forward to that one, folks. Now, all i got to do is find PJ Frightful or a worthy substitute. Mm. Oh, yeah, and because he's sick or dead or whatever, now I've got to read the outro. All right, how do we do this? Midnight, the podcasting hour, is part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. You can find Ryan, me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or send an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can also support Midnight, the Podcasting Hour, and the Fire and Water Network on Patreon. Special thanks to all of our generous supporters who keep this show alive. Is that supposed to be a joke? I don't know. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Midnight, the Podcasting Hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and have a good midnight. What does that mean? Good midnight? How is that a sign-off? Sign-off.